Hey everybody, Sarah here. Back in 2017, when Laurel and I started Movement Logic, we felt that movement teachers were being shortchanged by the available continuing education options out there, and we wanted to fill that gap. Now here we are, five years later, and I'm very proud of the tutorials we've created so far. What's really exciting is, together with Jaisal Parikh, we're launching a brand new hip and SI joint tutorial. In the movement world, the hips and the SI joint get a ton of attention. But at the same time, we see loads of injuries and misinformation all over the place. So what's going on? Clearly, there's some sort of disconnect and an information gap happening. As some of you might know, I have had several hip surgeries, including a hip replacement about 10 years ago. I don't blame my yoga practice for it because there's a meaningful genetic aspect, but I certainly don't think that my years of deep hip openers particularly helped, in large part because the way I practiced leaned into my hypermobility instead of working on the stability and the longevity that my body really needed. There's a lot of unlearning for a lot of us to do around things like hypermobility, SI joint pain, sciatica, yoga butt, and other hip-related concerns. So with that in mind, Laurel, Jaisal, and I have created a free HIPS mini course video series for you in which we address these topics and more, including gender bias and inclusivity, whether we store emotions in our HIPS, and why demonizing the SI joint is not particularly helpful. Right now, you can sign up for the free mini course, and by doing so, you'll get a discount code for $25 off our full HIP and SI joint tutorial. This tutorial is a four-hour course that includes the anatomy and normal structural variations of the pelvis that can determine how a person might be able to move, how injuries happen, as well as how we experience pain, and of course, a whole lot about how movement can be a solution to specific obstacles like SI joint pain, sciatica, and yoga butt, and tons and tons of exercises for you to try out. If you're interested in learning a more thoughtful approach to movement solutions for yourself and your students, Sign up for the mini course and get your $25 discount code for the full tutorial. The link to sign up is in our show notes, or if you follow us on Instagram at Movement Logic Tutorials, the link to sign up is in our bio. And now it's time for today's episode. Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to episode 22 of the Movement Logic Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Court, and I'm here with my co-host, Laurel Beversdorf. And today we are talking about the Valhalla of fitness goals, 10,000 steps. Where did this 10,000 steps idea actually come from? The answer, if you don't know, the answer might surprise you. It sure as heck surprised me. I was like, wow, that's really, really random. <laughs> with that said, we're, we're also going to investigate the, the value of step tracking generally, and walking for exercise, how many steps do we actually need, right? Is 10,000 really the true number? Does it depend based on our age, our fitness levels, other parameters? 
And then how to like, quote unquote, get your steps in, which is a phrase I hear all the time. I mean, my will joke, like crossing the room, oh, I'm getting my steps in, you know? So how do you get your steps in without becoming so just completely obsessed with the number uh, or just, or cheating to, to make the tracker happy? Like I also have friends who will just sit and do this with their arms <laughs> so that the tracker will ping and be like, you did it, you know? So <laughs> can you, can you verbally describe? Oh, sorry. Yes. Saying. I realized I just did on a pod, on a audio <laughs> setting so what I did was I just waved my arms like I was running while I was sitting down I just hit the microphone as well I have a lot of friends who do that to like get to close the circle or whatever the thing is on the app on the iWatch I don't I don't have it but I think it's like the circles close or something um my health insurance randomly has this thing where it gives you a number of steps to do per day based on your what it's tracking is as how many steps you're doing and then it gives you a dollar if you meet those step requirements up to a hundred dollars a year. So I for sure have been up at like, I should have been going to bed, but instead I'm holding my phone. Cause I don't, again, I don't have the Apple watch and I'm like just pacing back and forth in my apartment, wait, trying to get that last hundred steps to get my oh, dollar. My yeah. goodness. <laughs> so, you know, clearly I'm motivated by money. But we're going to look at like all this sort of step tracking and, and how useful walking is as a, you know, general fitness way to exercise. So as you all know by now, Laurel and I are coming at this from different perspectives. I'm a physical therapist. Laurel is a strength coach and a yoga teacher. Uh, and while we decided on this topic for our conversation, we haven't had this conversation before. Neither one of us, I don't think, particularly tracks our steps. I know that I don't really anymore, except for when I'm getting paid to do it. But this is a this is a very popular fitness convention, and you know we both have some opinions about it that we want to share with you. So, let's do what we do, movement logic style, and and dive in a little deeper. Ten thousand steps a day has become a, a benchmark that a lot of people use as a way to stay, you know, quote unquote healthy and to make sure they get enough movement into their day. There's recent research that estimates over 500 million people worldwide use a step tracking device, hmm. which is kind of wild. It's a lot of people. So Laurel, I have a question for you. Do you know how and when and where this 10,000 steps number originated? Um, now she may not remember this, but I accidentally gave Laurel a clue uh, because she asked me to share the research paper that came up with this number. And I had to tell her I couldn't because it's not a number that research came up with. Yeah, because you know what I was going to say is yeah. I thought it was a marketing device from mm -hmm. Fitbit. That would be my guess. Oh, like Fitbit itself came up yeah. with 10,000. Fit, was Fitbit the first tracking device that was like really super popular? In the digital age, probably, yes. But I think there were much more um, sort of simple things like that didn't like sync with your phone and things like that sort of prior prior to this oh, um okay okay so so the answer to that is no that's not the correct answer okay um do you have any other guesses apart from fitbit came up with it no i don't i i yeah. can't imagine how you would even test that but anyway um so okay there's, there's literally no chance that you would come up with it, this answer on your own listeners i made up two possible sources. And then I have one that is the correct answer. So I'm going to read these three options to Laurel and you can play along at home. And, and Laurel's going to guess which one she thinks is the correct answer. Okay, here we go. So is it option A, as part of the promotion for the 1994 film Forrest Gump, 
in which Tom Hanks memorably runs back and forth across the country for, I think, three years, Nike developed the first ever pedometer that clipped onto a sneaker. It was so successful that it sold out in days. Nike's ad campaign used footage from the film and the tagline, 10,000 steps a day, just do it. Okay, so that's option one. That's option one. Or A, rather. Option A. Option B, in response to growing concerns over the health of everyday Americans, President Lyndon B. Johnson introduced the President's Challenge in 1968 that aimed to encourage all Americans to, quote, make being active part of their everyday lives. Participants would receive awards based on their activity level that they would manually record in a log. One of the awards was for walking at least an hour and a half each day. And when pedometers were later developed, that was translated into 10,000 steps. Okay, Hmm. so that's B. Or C, in response to the popularity of the 1964 Olympics, Japanese company Yamasa created the first ever step tracker called Manpokai, which translates to 10,000 step meter. The marketing slogan, let's walk 10,000 steps a day, was catchy and inspiring, and it became a fashionable fitness goal for everyday Japanese people. In addition, since 1,000 is a lucky number in Japanese tradition, this number of 10,000 was seen as auspicious. Mm. Okay, so is it A, Forrest Gump and Nike? Is it B, Lyndon B. Johnson and the President's Challenge? Or is it C, the 1964 Olympics? What do you think? Wow, so one of them is like a corporate marketing scheme. The second one is this U.S. government initiative. And the third one is like an international Olympic thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to go with A because I feel like the corporations really know how to drill ideas into people's heads. (laughs) That's an excellent answer. Unfortunately, it is incorrect. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Dang it. I wonder what everybody at home listening guessed. But the, the correct answer is C. It was this Japanese company that created the first ever step tracker in 1964. So actually, this answers your prior answer of like, did Fitbit come up with the first one? No. And they've actually been around since 1964, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Even even before Lyndon B. Johnson's whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So wait a second. But my question now is like the 10,000 steps thing. Yes. I, I didn't hear about it until like the mid 2000s. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't. I'm sorry, the mid 2000 aughts, the aughts, the mid aughts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Me neither. And I think part of that is, you know, I I think this sort of was a a uh, a campaign or or a trend that happened in Japan in the 60s and wasn't really absorbed into broader culture. And I don't. I got to say, I don't actually know why it suddenly became a thing. In the two mm. thousands, that would be a really, a really interesting. I feel like it might have been the the smartwatches, like mm-hmm. right around the time of the Fitbit is when I started hearing about it. Yeah, like my sister in law had a Fitbit, and she was always, you know, leaving after dinner to go get her walk in, which is great, you know, but right. she wanted to right. get her steps. Get your steps in, yeah. So let's talk about the research around this number of ten thousand steps. So this number. And, and and maybe this has to do, maybe this is uh, related to your answer. This number has been adopted by the World Health Organization and HHS, the, oh God, what does that stand for? That's just the American version of the World Health Organization. So they've adopted this number as a goal, but it's not actually based on any factual evidence. 
a lot of research initially compared doing 10,000 steps with 5,000 steps or 3,000 steps and concluded that 10,000 steps was better for your health. But that doesn't tell us the value of, you know, 8,000 or 12,000. So the 10,000 just keep keeps being reinforced with this idea of like the more that you exercise, the healthier you are. But there is newer research about the, you know, quote unquote, right number for a particular person, not just, you know, everyone needs 10,000 steps. Are you are you at all a step tracker or a fit bitter? I don't think you are, but I'm, I'm just need to double check. No, but I do track my sleep. Oh, okay. So I'm a tracker. I just don't track steps. I track sleep. You're a sleep tracker. Oh, and I also track my like deadlift PR. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> <laughs> I track shit. I just don't track steps. And I think it's definitely useful to track shit. Um, yeah. Whether, whether really clearly or just kind of, you know, generally to get a sense of like, oh, I'm getting stronger or mm. you know, things like that. You know, my my relationship with step tracking is is basically non-existent. Again, uh, the first half of the first, well, not half, the first, you know, three or four months of the year, I care about it because that's when I'm earning my $100. But once, <laughs> I've, once I've earned my dollar a day for 100 days, I basically give up on it completely because I don't really care. <laughs> so for me, if it's monetized, if there's money in the game. Yeah. That external it. accountability. Yeah. So my so my husband was tracking his steps. He's a he was we were living in New York City. He was a public school teacher and he basically just didn't sit down all day. And so mm-hmm. he would rack up like fourteen thousand steps. Yeah. And then the pandemic hit and he noticed this really steep drop off in terms of his steps. And that's when I think I started to like look back on my history and my phone and go, oh, I've also stopped walking as much. And then during the pandemic is when I really started to become a little bit more curious in it. But since then, I really haven't been. I think that now living in Alabama, I walk a lot less. I know that I do. I have a car Mm -hmm. and it just it's a lot less walking. But I'm also um, doing more strength training per week. And I'm also adding in some cardio respiratory respiratory endurance or you know running uh type stuff Mm -hmm. where um i'm probably challenging my heart a lot more than i was yeah pre-pandemic or pandemic even though we're kind of still in the pandemic i think that's true for a lot of people i think for a lot of people not just their walking but their general like fitness engagement went down over the pandemic and a Uh lot of people who are suddenly working from home were you know, not leaving the house, especially much, you know, um, I definitely mm-hmm. see that with patients that I'm seeing in the clinic who are coming in and they're like, yeah, for the past two years, I just really haven't exercised as much as I used to, or I used to go to this class, but then the class stopped happening or things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like you, I live now, not I live now, I live in a place where I have a car. And so I definitely walk a lot less than I did when I yeah. lived in New York. I would say that my time spent exercising has gone up since mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, but my time engaging in physical activity mm-hmm. has gone down, if that makes sense. Yes. Like I, in some ways I'm more sedentary activity. now because yeah. I, I'm now fully running my own business and sitting at a computer quite, quite a bit more. I'm not running around teaching classes at other businesses, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think I've become more serious about my physical, um, health and well-being from the standpoint of like really challenging my body from a strength and cardio endurance perspective. So I am exercising more. So it's interesting, the trade-off. And I wonder, this 10,000 steps is more, I think, about physical activity 
just moving more, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the goal is to get people out of this sort of sedentary lifestyling to get them up and moving more. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I also like you now that I, again, I keep saying now I've lived here for 13 years. I walk a lot less in, in LA than I do pretty much anywhere else. I was in Lisbon a couple of weeks ago and to be fair, I didn't have a car, but I walked everywhere. And if anyone's been there, it's all Hills. So you're going uphill or downhill. I mean, I was like, am I on a, you know, step tracker, like one of the, what are those <laughs> things called those machines? I can't even remember. Nordic- escalator. Oh, Nordic. Oh, yeah. I wish there was an escalator. My mom. You know, that city actually has elevators built into the city for like really steep hills. Nice. It's wild. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to the topic at hand. So, you know, I, I get a, a, have a general sense around how much strength training or, you know, I do strength training. I work out on the reformer and I hike. Those are my three main sources of, of exercise, but the hike happens less frequently. You know, it's maybe once a week. And I also, I mean, this is like very niche, but I ride a motorcycle and I will ride the motorcycle a couple of times a week for a couple of hours. And it is not, I was with our friend Trina Altman and she was like, I picture you like on a Harley, just kind of leaning back. I'm like, oh no, I am on a sport bike, which means it is, you are controlling the bike with your body the entire time. Like you're using your legs. My inner thighs have never been stronger. <laughs> and so it's a very physical activity, but a very kind of niche physical activity. Mm. But there is value, you know, I, I'll sort of get a sense over like the past week or something be like, wow, I really didn't walk around very much mm-hmm. last week. And there is a great deal, deal of value of walking for exercise and I definitely see with my patients when they come in and we're we're figuring out like what exercise they can do safely or without pain while we're rehabbing. And I'll be like, look, don't underestimate the value of walking. I know Mm. that you were a tennis player or I know that you like to run or whatever, but for now, walking is a really good way to get exercise. Mm -hmm. And so in research, what it tells us is that there's an inverse relationship between the number of daily steps and cardiovascular disease all cause mota- mortality, mortality, meaning, meaning, you know, any reason, and type two diabetes. Hmm. So the more steps you take, the more those, uh, the likelihood of all of those go down. But it doesn't but, tell you anything about how fast you're walking. No, but that's coming up. I'm going to talk okay. about that. Oh, okay. It's also, it's not linear. It's not a like one-to-one ratio, this, this relationship. So it's not like, you know, more steps are better, but it's not like if you take 10 more steps, you're 10 times less likely to have one of these diseases or something. Mm. There's relevance around, and these are areas that just need to be studied more, whether you're doing all of your walking at once and then around the cadence, right? The rate of walking. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. So then the question becomes, what what number does someone actually need to get to based on their age, their gender, their health, et cetera? Um, and there was this interesting article in The Guardian, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. A professor, Katrine Tudor-Locke, says, we need to change our focus from how many is enough to how many is too few. Mm. And also looking at that rate and speed. So, so minimal effective dose. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, this is me smashing my papers around. Okay. So it's broken down by age. So if you're 60 and older, uh, there is that decreased risk of mortality, but only up to between 6,000 and 8,000 steps per day. So that's the minimal effective dose. Exactly. So anything you do over 8,000 is just gravy, but you don't have to hit 10,000 to get that effect. Mm -hmm. If you are under 60 years old, 
uh, it's the same relationship. More more steps is increase. Excuse me, decreased risk of mortality up to between eight thousand and ten thousand a day. So over sixty, you want to hit eight thousand. Under sixty, you you know anything over eight thousand is great. Um, the bottom line is there's not really any significance to this ten thousand number beyond mm-hmm. the the original source, but there is such a thing as too little walking. Mm. None of this is, you know, all of this research is sort of relatively new and it's not comparison the comparison, comparing. <laughs> you make up the best words on accident. Uh, it's not comparison the value of <laughs> walking compared to something like the value of strength training, you know, because I think they are different in terms of what a lot of the research, most research is really looking at cardiovascular health because they're really concerned about heart disease, general heart health, right? So they're looking at cardiovascular types of exercise and that impact on cardiovascular health. I haven't seen, which doesn't mean there isn't any, but I haven't seen as much research on strength training and cardiovascular health. I think that would be a really interesting thing to to study. Well, strength training, from my understanding, does challenge your cardiovascular system but not nearly to the extent that aerobic endurance training would. Yes, it's true. <clears throat> but I wonder also then if it would have to be some sort of long form study where they looked at people who are strength training and then how many of them actually developed heart disease and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. It, wouldn't, it wouldn't be this immediate, I don't know. I, I think it would be interesting to study, but uh, maybe challenging to do. So can I ask a question? Of course. I haven't seen any of this research. Mm-hmm. And I think you're way more research literate than me. So, you know, this is my question that I'm just off the cuff kind of coming up with. When they take these minimum effective dose sort of numbers and they go, okay, if you're under 65, you should be hitting this at a minimum. and you're over 65, you should be hitting this at a minimum. This is for people who potentially haven't done very much in their life leading up to that, because I would imagine that people who have been active their whole life, the minimum effective dose might actually be lower. Wouldn't you say than the people who haven't done a whole lot? Because they've almost... Yeah, go ahead. They've (laughs) prepared their body. Mm -hmm. They've prepared their body Mm -hmm. maybe to be able to handle the negative impact of being more sedentary, whereas folks who've been sedentary leading up to that point, whatever that point is, mm-hmm. before 65 or after 65, haven't. Also, I want to know for how long were they tracking these people? The, like so how, the second, for how many, yeah. how, how, how long of a time were they actually studying how long these people were yeah. walking this number of steps per day? It's a good question. And I did not write it down in my notes. So okay. I think the studies that I looked at, I'll put in the show notes, but Maybe we can answer that in the show notes as well. But to go back to your first question, mm-hmm. um, have you heard the phrase use it or lose it? Oh, uh, <laughs> so y'all. this is the thing on a sort of, so I want to go micro and macro on a micro scale. What they have found in this is a bit of a bummer is that even if you and I do a strength training workout, that's, you know, a lot of work and it's 45 minutes if I then spend the rest of my day sitting down, it doesn't 
really matter that I did that workout in terms of, I believe, cardiovascular health or just health generally. On a, on a macro scale, if I've been generally extremely healthy my entire life in terms of the amount of exercise or the amount of sports I played or, or whatever, yes, that sets you up to be in a really good position because you're not starting from this zero point. But when they look, they'll do like an MRI of a 70 year old cross, like through their thigh, for example, so that you see the bone in the middle, you see the muscle and you see the fat around it. And for a 70, there's this really famous picture of like a 70 year old who is a triathlete and it's, you know, there's the bone and the bone actually looks super healthy, unsurprisingly. And it's a lot of muscle and a little bit of fat. And then they side by side compare it to a 70 year old person who's sedentary. And as you mm. would expect, the bone is not as strong. Mm. There's not as much muscle. There's more fat infiltration into the muscle tissue. So it's not that you, you know, I think the numbers are just sort of like, you do have to continue to be active mm. in order to continue to stave off concerns around cardiovascular health. I don't think it's like um, your savings account where you've just banked all of this and then you can coast for the rest of your life. I think it generally sets you up to be in a much better position mm -hmm. if you have, because your health is probably better. Your habits are already there. They're ingrained, but it's not like you hit 60. And then if you sit down for the next 25, 30, 40 years, it's totally fine because the first part of your life, you worked out a ton. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so what, what I do know is that we lose cardio respiratory capacity much faster than we, use, than we lose strength and muscle. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these losses, which in the strength and conditioning field are called detraining, mm -hmm. but what we might generally know as deconditioning happen at different rates, depending on the system involved. So for strength training, the strength training's impact on cardio health is it's there. It's something, yeah. but it's, it's just not the way to challenge your cardiovascular system. There's a real kind of ceiling to that. Mm -hmm. Um, where you're going to hit the ceiling and then you're not going to be able to push it any further than that. So, because you're never going to reach a high enough VO2 max while you're strength training yeah. to, to improve that. Uh, VO2 max is the rate, yes. rate of you. oxygen. Yeah, the, the amount of oxygen your body is able to use as fuel. Um, oxygen uptake, I think, is a nice, uh, more friendly term to use instead of VO2 max. So the amount of oxygen your muscles are be, are able to use to propel you that your whole system, your whole body, your system of systems is able to use to, to keep you moving forward while you're running, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and the better you get at being able to utilize oxygen, you know, the more your cardiovascular abilities improve. Yeah. Strength training, you're going to hit a ceiling really quickly on your VO2 max if that's all you're doing. Yeah. Um, and so they find that people who do cardiorespiratory endurance training and strength training tend to see more benefits in their ability to perform cardiovascularly than they do in their abilities to perform um, well in, in their strength uh, mm. endeavors and their mm -hmm. strength performance. However, I have heard that people with cardiovascular, cardiorespiratory, higher levels of cardiorespiratory endurance who are doing cardiovascular training recover faster in their rest periods while strength training. So that's interesting. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and 
completely anecdotally, I have mm-hmm. found that my strength training has made my the hiking that I do that is you know uphill uh, better. I fatigue much less quickly and I recover mm-hmm. much more quickly. And it's not because I'm doing any more hiking than I'm doing. It's it's I I can only attribute that to the strength training. Yeah, yeah, it definitely cardiovascular or cardiorespiratory endurance training is indicated. I'm sorry, strength training is indicated for cardiorespiratory endurance athletes. What the strength folks, unfortunately, are often, I think, erroneously touting on Instagram, (laughs) the internet, is that cardio will wreck your strength gains, Mm. which is not true. And my question to those folks is, how long do you want to live well? Because if you're actually never challenging your cardiorespiratory system, Mm -hmm. you're more likely to get heart disease. You're more likely to have vascular disease. So do you, do you want to have huge ripped muscles now and then have (laughs) heart problems later? Or do you want to actually be able to do all of this for longer? Um, And maybe recover between your, between your sets faster too. Right. So do you happen to know, sorry, do you happen to know where that idea came from? Because I've never actually heard that, but that's... You know, unfortunately, it's kind of baked into the literature. Uh, So the textbook, the NSCA textbook, The Essentials of Strength and Conditioning, Mm -hmm. talk about combination training. So combination training is when you combine cardiorespiratory endurance training with uh, anaerobic uh, training or strength training, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, is a form of anaerobic training. And the idea is that it only works in one direction. <laughs> kind of what's communicated is that it's best for cardio respiratory endurance athletes or cardio endurance athletes to do strength training because the strength training supports the biomechanical demands of running, for example. Mm-hmm. You're maybe less likely to suffer the types of injuries that runners suffer if you have stiffer tendons, if you have stronger muscles. And maybe stronger bones, right? Honestly. And that all makes sense. Then they find the opposite is true. Now, keep in mind, this is a textbook written for athletes. And there's really no distinguishment made between like our high school or um, recreational athletes and our Olympic athletes. It's just for all athletes. Mm -hmm. The idea is that if you don't want to hurt your performance as, say, an Olympic weightlifter, which is a high-velocity um, strength, uh, basically a performance of high-velocity strength. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't do cardio endurance training, certainly not before you do your high-velocity strength training. And kind of what's communicated is that it's just not valuable really for your performance in that that particular sport and then we could extrapolate that out to you know other types of strength performance athletes that doesn't include like our soccer players and our basketball players and our volleyball players those are athletes that actually need both aerobic and anaerobic capacity and in sometimes in equal measures actually um depending. So soccer would be a little bit more aerobic. And I would say like volleyball and basketball would be a little bit more anaerobic, especially volleyball. Anaerobic meaning <clears throat> your body's not using oxygen to create energy. It's it's creating energy much quicker. And so this is more explosive, max effort, single event type 
like jumping up and hitting a ball, jumping up and blocking a ball. This is where heavy strength training and high velocity strength training is probably going to make a bigger impact on the performance for that athlete. Whereas soccer, you're running the length of an entire soccer field. Your heart better be in really good shape for that kind of a thing. Um, The idea espoused in the textbook is that for strength athletes, so think Olympic weightlifters, power lifters, things like that, cardio respiratory endurance training will make no positive impact on your performance. So this is where this perspective on athletic training, I think, becomes really myopic and potentially Mm -hmm. damaging because ultimately if we're training some high school athlete or recreational athlete, performance in their sport is such a small part of what we're actually preparing them for in their life. And even if we're talking about high performing athletes, aren't we also potentially trying to facilitate health and longevity for the whole person all of the time. It's just really, I think, damaging and myopic to go, cardio doesn't matter. You don't need to run. Just lift weights. It's like not true. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. You need to be challenging your heart. Right. And Absolutely. strength training isn't going to do it. It's, right. it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you're going to hit a ceiling and you, you should probably be doing a little bit more than that. And the CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control um, episode, whatever we talked about how much should you exercise i can't mm-hmm. remember what episode it was probably it was around 10 or 11 yeah um recommends two times a week strength training but then is it like 45 between 45 and 150 minutes of cardio respiratory endurance and yeah. if it's 45 minutes it's intense so you can't have a conversation and if it's 150 minutes which is which is quite a bit longer it can be less intense but you actually have to do much more of it right i think it's a bit more of that moderate not 45 and 150 i don't remember i think it's maybe 75 and 150 so okay. it's like yeah the harder it is the less you have to do the easier it is the more you have to do yeah yeah and that i mean that's that's the case for the relationship between um intensity and volume right yeah. the more intense you're working the less duration the less reps you're going to be able to do of that thing um you're going to see very different adaptations from intensity and low, high intensity and low intensity training. But for right. the most part, what the CDC is concerned with of is just this general picture of how often are you challenging your systems? Mm-hmm. And how hard. <laughs> and how hard. It's, I think it's interesting that, I mean, it sounds, so there's definitely, there's a difference between the concept and it is myopic for sure there's a bit of a difference between the concept of you don't need to do any cardiovascular exercise in order to improve your performance at your strength sport versus doing cardiovascular exercise is going to decrease how well you do your strength sport and i'm wondering about that second idea and if that's something that just in the game of telephone of passing along information and the way that ideas get kind of absorbed and then like spat out in in a slightly different meaning where that came from and if that's you know if that's how if people are are dismissing cardio because they're like eh, it's not going to make my pr any better versus are they dismissing cardio because they think it's actually going to hurt their pr something well like here's that. I, I, I can tell you what the literature says. So Please. in the textbook, <laughs> it re- does not recommend doing cardio respiratory endurance training before the day of, right? Right before doing your anaerobic training, your strength training, or maybe it's your plyometric training uh, or your velocity-based strength training, your Olympic lifts or your kettlebell swings or whatever. 
do those first and then do your cardio respiratory training. That's if you are prioritizing your strength, right? And it's also kind of common sense, which what this means is that when you're lifting heavy weights, the stakes are a little higher, form matters more. And so you don't want to exhaust yourself on the treadmill or exhaust yourself running around outside and then come and do these higher stakes movements when you've already kind of depleted your energy. You've already spent your energy capital on running and you're poorer in terms of energy. And now you're starting from this less rich, energy rich place. The other thing about fitness in general, whether it's strength or cardiorespiratory fitness, is that we're always balancing fitness and fatigue. So on one side, we've got fitness and we're trying to get fitness, but while we're trying to get fitness, we're accumulating fatigue. And this fatigue can last for a couple of seconds. It can last for a couple of minutes. There are different mechanisms for fatigue and different types of fatigue. It can also last for for several days. So if you do a long, hard run on Tuesday and then you go to strength train on Wednesday, you're probably going to see a decrease in your performance on Wednesday because you've accumulated so much fatigue on Tuesday from your run. This is something we're always balancing though. And so if your priority is on strength and strength performance, then what you would do is you would strategize when you're doing your cardiorespiratory training so that it is deprioritized and you're not taking away from, in other words, you're not allowing it to bring you to this very fatigued state before you are going to perform your strength training exercises. You would perform your strength training exercises and then you would be less energy rich, more fatigued in your cardiorespiratory endurance training. Now, what if you're a cardiorespiratory uh, endurance athlete or you're prioritizing you know, your, your performance in running? You wanna be able to run faster, you wanna be able to run longer, you wanna be able to do races or whatever your, your goal is. You wouldn't necessarily start with your run and then do your strength training even there, right? But what you might do is you might take whole a whole day to just work on running and give yourself the rest of the day to recover and then do your strength training the next day from, you know, maybe not a fully rested and unfatigued state, but you would allow yourself to be most energy rich and most prepared for your runs because that's really where you want to shine. That's where mm-hmm. you want to be able to give it your all so that you can improve right. your performance. It's a balancing act. It's always a balancing yeah. act. We're always balancing fit, fitness and fatigue. And it seems like it also really depends on what your exercise fitness movement priorities are. And then yes. as a result of that, what are you going to prioritize versus deprioritize? But I don't think there's really anyone out there except for maybe, you know, performance level athletes who, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, Olympic weightlifters, for example, who should, I mean, they probably probably shouldn't anyway, but uh, only do one or the other, let's say. Like if you're a long distance runner, that doesn't mean you should never strength train. If you're a power lifter, it doesn't mean you should never go for a walk or a run. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the rest of us, ordinary human beings, Uh, you know, it, again, it, it, there are these parameters being set around number of steps a day that are age-based. There's also, I think we can all sort of have a sense in ourselves of how, how fit do I feel right now? Mm. And it's a kind of a nebulous term, but 
for me at least what it is 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 you know not it's not a day to day it's a sort of weeks or a month feeling and i can tell in the chunks of time where i haven't done as much of any kind of exercise let's say if i've been like super busy with work or i don't know i feel less you know quote unquote fit in my body i can tell like i don't feel as strong i don't feel as energized. I feel more sluggish. It, it impacts my mood in a huge way, you know? So I think for, for the rest of us, ordinary people getting a sense of like, what is, what is the amount where in my life, I now feel like I can, I can live it in a way that I feel really good and optimal and, and how much, how much sort of on a weekly or monthly basis, does that mean I need to do of exercise of any kind? And then, you know, getting even more nitty gritty, which kind makes me feel what, you know? And Absolutely. I think, you know, for, for, you know, us regular people, it's a really good thing to start to try to track and get a sense of. Um, and it's always hard to, you know, if you've, if you've had a few weeks, I mean, it's true for everybody. If you've had a few weeks where you haven't moved as much, it becomes increasingly harder to motivate, to start up again. Uh, and, that is where to, to bring it on back to walking. That's where I think walking is actually a really great um, sort of bridge in a way, because, you know, if you, if you haven't done your strength training for a while and you're like, Oh God, I pick up some weights. It's going to be so heavy. Or like, if you haven't gone for a run, you're like, Oh God, the first mile is just, it's going to suck. <laughs> run so long. Or, you know, if you just, if you've had a day where you're like, Oh God, I've been sitting all day and I don't know, I'm just going to go home and sit in front of the TV you know, that's where a 20 minute walk can actually start to really change things and get mm -hmm. your body some of that endorphin again and get you back into this feel like habit and feeling of wanting to move, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it's sort of self-propelling, but you have to give it a push in the beginning to get it going. It's like those cars, those toy cars where you have to drag them backwards first and then you let them go and they go mm. flying across the room, right? Yeah. But like that first part, <laughs> that first part of like, you kind of have to do the work yourself and then the, the impetus for it and the habit kind of tends to, to take off a little bit from there. Hmm. So I have another question for you. What are, some, what are some ways to get more walking into your life without being, you know, hyper-focused on this number or, you know, getting your steps in or, or things like that? Do you, do you, Laurel, have any habits that you try to use or that you, you suggest to people that emphasize just kind of that, that getting up and moving around? separate from these are the, you know, times that I'm sharing, I'm saving for exercising, working out. I don't necessarily like, for example, I'm not a super like Katie Bowman type person where remove all the furniture from my living room so that I have to sit on the floor or like park three miles before I get to the grocery store so that I have to walk the three miles to the grocery store and load up my backpacking backpack with my groceries and then hike the remaining three miles back. Mm -hmm. But I think those are those are cool things yes. to do. And they're um, really clever ways of, of really combining the work that you need to do in your life or even the relaxation that you're going to do in your life with more physical activity slash just more movement, right? Yeah. So for me, what I do is I allow my mental health and that feeling state that you described of like, how fit do I feel? Mine often is how satisfied and happy, or maybe happy is like the wrong word, like just how um, positive 
or how mm, good maybe do I feel right now? And if the answer is not great, then my next question is, how long have I been sitting at this computer? Mm. Um, how, how, when's the last time I went outside? And that's my indication to stop, grab, you know, some water, get uh, some little energy in my body and like, let's just go for a walk. And the walk could be around the block and take me 10 minutes or the walk could be all the way along the trails of this land preserve I, I live next to and be an hour and a half or mm -hmm. anywhere in between, depending on how much time I have. I really allow my mental health to sort of spur me to get outside. That's mm -hmm. big. And then usually when I'm outside and I'm not doing putzing around the yard or whatever, I'm, I'm walking. And walking for me is really, really beneficial for just my mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if, if someone has a schedule like you and I do, where it's not, I go to a place and I stay there all day and then I leave the place and come home. Mm -hmm. um, we, we're fortunate in that we have the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to put down this project I'm working on right now. And I'm going to go outside for 20 minutes and walk around yeah. for my patients or my clients that I see who have desk jobs. And I think more and more corporate culture is understanding that like forcing their employees to sit at a desk without moving all day is, is detrimental. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's generally more of a sense of it's okay. If you see someone like getting up and stretching at their desk, it's not weird. Like I think more and mm -hmm. more people are doing stuff like that, but what I tell people who have, you know, desk job or like a job where you're just facing a computer all day long is you set a timer. And if it's possible, get up every, you know, 40 minutes, hour, whatever, whatever time block is reasonable based on the sort of the, the way that your tasks are, are set out during your day. And so that's even just a, like, get up, move around, stretch, maybe take a lap around the office or something like that. Um, I tell people like, if you're on a conference call and you are not, if you're just listening, cause there's so many of these where it's like, you, everyone call in and just listen. If mm -hmm. you're just listening to a conference call, put it on speaker, mute yourself and, you know, if you can, you know, just take it on your phone and, and go for a walk. If that's not an option, get up from your desk, move around, stretch again, like maybe take it on your phone and just walk around the office. And this is not steps. Well, it is steps. Technically it's going upwards. I, you know, take the stairs, take the stairs is like the easiest, quickest way. I think if you live in a, in a world where you have to use an elevator, um, or there's a lot of steps uh, that you can really get it in. I mean, this is something I do when I travel, when I fly, and then you have to like, you get off the plane. And even if you got up and moved around a bit, you still, have been, it's still pretty brutal. And everyone's like, oh, customs or whatever. And, you know, <laughs> there's a moving walkway and I'm either barreling down the moving walkway, like literally knocking people over like bowling pins, not really, but like with my <laughs> voice ahead of time. Um, or if there's an escalator, I'm using the stairs or, you know, things like that. Like I'm forcing more movement into my body in airports, like for example, mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's, I think one of the things that we can all do is just kind of look at our surroundings, look at the, uh, the things that we interact with on a daily basis and how can I make that more, you know, exercise-y for want of oh. a better word. Um, can I, you know, can I add something Sure. related to this? Please. So my, one of my dear friends, posted in her stories about whether she should get this really fancy percussive massage machine, or it maybe was like a really fancy neck massage contraption. And I 
my knee-jerk reaction was, no! And then she was like, wait, why? And I was like, oh, you know, I actually have to be thoughtful about, like, why? And I thought about it, and I was like, well, one, this might be overpriced. It looks like it feels great. It's just this contraption that just massages your neck, and you basically don't have to do anything, and you just go, oh, and you massage your neck. Sounds great. <laughs> and I know that my friend has therapy balls, and mm. she loves to do self-massage. And I was like, well, you have the therapy balls, which cost a fraction likely of what this costs. And I think half the benefit, maybe even more than half the benefit of the therapy balls is they actually force you to get up mm -hmm. and get down on the ground and roll around or stand against a wall and mm -hmm. squirm around. And like sometimes even like bring your body into kind of awkward positions as you're like trying to, you know, work on your quad or whatever. I feel like that might be the majority of the benefit of them is that they, because they're so basic and so effective and so affordable too, mm -hmm. you know, these are, these are really positive traits and they actually get you up and moving in addition to the ball getting your tissues moving, right? And it feels good and all the good benefits of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, and while you were saying that, I was like, oh, we should do an episode where we just compare various massage tools oh. and the pros and cons. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> I think yeah. that would be interesting. Yeah, I do. I, I do. would listen to that episode. Okay. Um, all right. So, you know, that's that's sort of a, that's it from me, at least, you know, the, the sum up of, you know, do I have to do 10,000 steps is the, the shorter answer is no. The longer answer is if you're over 60, then this is just from the research. If you're over 60, you want to get to at least 6,000. If you're under 60, you want to get to at 8,000. More than that is gravy. Less than that is not nothing, but it's not doing as much. And also like if you have a mm -hmm. week where you don't walk as much, it's you'll be fine. You know, like I think sometimes we get so hard on ourselves and that's where people get like, you know, they have this thing to track as an accountability tool, but then they also become like, uh, slave to the accountability tool where they're like, right. well, I can't, I can't sit here and talk to you because I have to go take my walk and get in my last thousand mm -hmm. steps. Right. So we always want to make my feeling is we always want to make sure that our exercise goals, our fitness goals are making our life better. Mm -hmm. Meaning also like we can be more present because we feel better because we're in a good mood because we were able to do our exercise, but I'm not going to, um, you know, be hard on myself if I had a week where I didn't do as much as I wanted to, right? It's just, we got to, we got to account for life. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Can I, can I ask, um, I want to add something that I wanted to add before, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of going back to something that we were talking about quite a bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to ask for just a little clarification of something you said. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing I want to say is, we were comparing the detraining, the speed of detraining or the speed of deconditioning that happens between the cardiorespiratory system and the muscular system um, with regards to how we might lose cardiorespiratory endurance faster than we would lose, say, strength or muscle. Mm -hmm. um, we should do a whole episode on detraining and, and whatnot with strength, or maybe I'll do a solo episode on it. With bone... Again, bone is a very different tissue than muscle and or slash, you know, uh, protein. Bone is muscle protein. It's a very it's a very different tissue in the sense that it's during the growth phase of bone that we have the most potential to improve 
our bone size, which is potentially the biggest factor with regards to um, bone strength. And so this happens around puberty um, before we our bones stop growing. Uh, and so I just wanted to say that when we're talking about how much we need to do in order to not backslide and enter a deconditioned state, it really depends on the system that we're challenging. Bone strength later after bone growth stops, right after the bones stop getting actually bigger in diameter or longer in length, is largely, I think, dependent on bone density, right, and the laying down of collagen, right? And so that's something that we get from strength training. It's something we potentially get from impact training as well. And what I think we're largely trying to do as we especially approach older age is prevent bone loss, right? And so that can happen while we're trying to prevent muscle as well. And depending on the type of impact training, it can also be kind of coupled with a more cardio endurance, cardio respiratory um, stimulus as well. But I guess when we talk about like how fast we're going to lose something, we should really get a little, maybe a little bit more specific about what we're trying to maintain. So in this episode, we're talking about just physical activity, just being more physically active, walking, being a very low intensity physical activity that we could just simply probably most of us be doing more of. Um, But if we're talking about bone strength and we're talking about strength, walking probably isn't going to be the way that we increase those capacities and the way we prevent detraining or deconditioning of those particular capacities. I just wanted to kind of go back to that. Absolutely. And no, 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 is it not like not likely? It's just not it's just, it's not going to it. And Amen. and I, I talk to a lot of my older <laughs> patients who they're like, yeah, I love to go on walks and I go to yoga and I'm like, we need to, have, you need to start lifting heavy things. <laughs> yeah. You know, you right. absolutely need to. It's not a question of maybe. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. Awesome. The other question I have for you is you said something along the lines of if you do your strength training workout, but then you do nothing for the rest of the day, it's almost as if the strength training workout never happened. <laughs> is that true? Well, okay. But that is speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. I need to look, you know, I'm sort of, I'm quoting in a very generalized way, but there is research around, it's not like it didn't happen in terms of like your bone density and your strength, but hmm. it's not, it's not um, erasing the detrimental factor of when I sat down for nine hours. Yes. Like, sitting down for nine hours is still detrimental. It's not made, it's not erased. By I, I, strength sorry. Training. I'm so yes. glad that I asked for clarification because yes, that makes total sense. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Woo-hoo. All right, everybody. Well, a note to you, you can check out our show notes for links to references that we mentioned in this podcast. You can visit the Movement Logic website where you can get on our mailing list to be in the know about sales on our tutorials. You can watch the video version of this episode if you want to see what our faces look like while we think out loud and uh, what our our recording spaces look like. I recently got a reformer in my office here at home, which I'm very excited about, but it means the Tetris that is going on in this room that (laughs) you can't see, but I am looking at has gone up a level. Like... Remember when Tetris was like, oh, now it's, now I'm on a hard, oh God, they're coming faster. And, oh, you know, it's <laughs> quite manic in here. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the Movement Logic podcast. Finally, it helps us, if it helps us so much, if you like this episode or any of our episodes, to subscribe and rate and review uh, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on 
Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. If you have a question that you'd like us to discuss, the one of the easiest ways to get it to us is pop it in that review that you're going to write about how much you liked this episode because we read them and it makes our little hearts just a little bit bigger to know that you are also enjoying the podcast. Review. Write a review. (laughs) Thank you all so much. And uh, we'll see you next time.